Hello and welcome to Celebration Church. Uh, glad that you've joined us for our Wednesday night Bible study. Now, I am actually in the building right now. I'm just not physically here. I'm down speaking to the group of teens in 180. Uh, so uh, I'll see you after the service. Of course, those of you who are watching by point, I'm really not there at all. But anyway, we are continuing our Bible study on the book of James. We uh, finished chapter 1, and now we're starting chapter 2. So starting at chapter 2. Now, this whole first, I'm going to read a bunch of verses uh, together here, because it's all dealing with one subject, and it has to do with showing favoritism, considering some people more special or more important than other people. So let's just read the section first, and then we'll talk about it. He writes, he says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, well, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, he says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Besides, he goes on, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, this is a really interesting uh, section of scripture and, and a part of the scripture that I think a lot of believers struggle with. This whole idea about showing favoritism. Uh, because, let's be quite honest, if, you know, Jose the meatpacker walks into the building uh, and Brett Favre walks into the building, chances are you're going to be much more enamored with Brett Favre than you would be with Jose. Now, that doesn't necessarily make you an evil person. A lot of that's just natural and normal. We all feel that way. Now, the Bible isn't talking about how you feel. It's talking about how you act. You can't help but feel different around different kinds of people. But you can determine how you act. In other words, if you were to say to Mr. Favre, hey, man, Brett, come on in and sit in the front row. Is there anything I can get you? And da da da. And then we're telling Jose, you know, hey, you know, go back there or, or bug off or, or we're too busy to pay attention to you. That's where we're sinning. That's where we're showing favoritism. And that's where James said that these guys were blowing it. And why we need to be careful as believers always to treat everyone the same. Everyone is worthy of prayer, of consideration, of service, any way that we can serve them. But again, you can't help but feel differently around different types of people. And in fact, I would argue that it would be proper in some respects to treat or, or feel differently towards people. Now, before you have a cow here, let me explain myself. The Bible says that we're supposed to show honor to whom honor is due. So, if the President of the United States comes in, biblically, we should be showing honor to him because of who he is. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, now we're fighting with James because you're showing favoritism. No, 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 it's not favoritism, it, that's a matter of honor. And you're not dis intentionally uh, dissing the other people. See, that's where these guys were at. Not only were they honoring one particular person, they were humiliating 
the other guy. He said, you were treating them in, in, an, in an evil way. You've insulted the poor, he writes. So, um, so if you're doing that, that's wrong. But it's not wrong to show honor to whom honor is due. Now, a lot of Christians who, uh, you know, look at this verse of scripture get kind of angry at churches because a lot of churches uh, will do special things with, uh, for example, key givers in the church. And they will criticize that bitterly, saying, well, you're not supposed to, you know, just pay attention to one guy because he's a giver versus someone else who doesn't give as much money. And while that's true, not to intentionally show favoritism to one and ignore and humiliate the other, I don't believe it's improper to show honor to those who have succeeded highly in life and that come. And these people give a lot of money, way more than their tithes. And these people, a lot of these Churches wouldn't even exist in America like this today if it weren't for people who gave significant amounts of money that didn't need to give it, but who did it just because, you know, they gave extra out of the extra that they had to advance the kingdom of God and to meet with people like that and to give them a vision and why uh, the church or the vision or the ministry or whatever needs uh, that extra support. I don't think is what James is talking about. Now, you can disagree and people can disagree about stuff all the time, but I, that respect, I don't think that's that's out of line. Virtually every church does that. Virtually every ministry in the world brings in what they call their special uh, contributors and champions of the ministry and stuff like that and, uh, and appeal to them and show what I believe is honor to them so that uh, these people will contribute more to their ministry so they can give to the poor, so they can minister. So I don't think it's inconsistent. If these people just met with key givers and key contributors in the church and just ministered to them and ignored those who are hurting and those who are poor and everything else, that's where I believe the favoritism comes in. And that's where we would sin. That's where we would start making this mistake. So, um, again, don't don't uh, be offended when you are aware of a church or an organization or something giving some attention to people who, you know, might have significant wealth, uh, you know, now that would be wrong if they ignored others, but when they give attention, again, there's nothing wrong with honoring people who the Bible says to whom honor is due. Now, in our country here, you know, we don't have like they have in Europe, you know, in England where you had, you know, uh, kings and princes and lords and, you know, virtually anybody with significant wealth in those countries had some kind of a title. And, well, if they have a title, then a lot of us can see, well, I can see giving them respect. Well, in this country, we don't give titles and stuff like that to people, but it's basically the same position in life. People who have succeeded highly have all this wealth and stuff like that. They deserve, I think, just in that degree, because they've been successful, they employ lots of people, they give lots of money, they're philanthropic. We're not talking mean, stingy people here. We're talking people who really do invest in the lives of others uh, out of great wealth that God has blessed them with. I don't think there's anything wrong with honoring those people uh, or honoring those, you know, uh, presidents or governors or mayors and stuff that come into church and stuff like that. Sometimes you'll see us honor someone who's a, a politician or something like that. That's being respectful. There's nothing wrong with being respectful and, and honoring people like that. What's wrong is when you cater and kowtow to just those kinds of significant people and ignore regular people, or worse, despise poor people that uh, can't contribute 
contribute much into the kingdom of God. One of the slams on, on a lot of churches is they seem to only cater to people who are wealthy. As long as you have money, oh boy, we really want to get you in the church. And if you don't have money, then we're not so interested in getting you in the church. That is sin. That is wrong. That's uh, outrageous. I have talked... Uh, many times about uh, wanting to start a, a ministry to the Hispanic community in the Green Bay area. Uh, we just haven't gotten there yet. There's so many things that we're doing, but we're definitely moving in that direction. We're continuing to make steps, meeting with people, and uh, even talking to uh, people who could get involved in heading up that ministry and stuff. But once we do that, that's going to be a big step for us. But it's going to be interesting because we're going to be reaching out to people who can't give us anything. We can't benefit from putting 500 people in here who have little to no money. Well, is that a lot of churches then would not reach out to them because of that. I say, no, I think we should reach out to everybody. We don't only have to reach out to people who can give us money. We need to reach out to everybody. Rich, poor, in between, white, black, Hispanic, it doesn't really matter. We need to love everybody. We shouldn't show favoritism. But even with a heart like that that I have, you'll see me still showing uh Honor to people who have earned honor, be they, uh, you know, again, politicians or successful businessmen and stuff like that. I just don't think that's favoritism. I just think that that's different. Some would disagree and say any kind of special recognition is favoritism. I just don't think that makes any sense because the Bible says to show honor to those to whom honor is due. So anyway, dealing with all of that. So picking it up again at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. By the way, you'll, you'll notice that he's, he keeps saying the phrase about the law, the royal law. Um, in a chapter 1, there was a couple of places. For example, when we talked about being doers of the word and not just listeners, about looking in the mirror and letting that reflect properly on you. He says, the, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. You'll constantly see him referring to this law thing. What is he talking about? Um, James, if you remember the very, very first verse in, in the book of James, he writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. He's writing specifically to Jewish Christians. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of this, that, but virtually... In the beginning, all Christians were Jewish. In fact, they believed that if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't become a Christian. If you read the book of Acts, it's really fascinating to, to, to read how the biggest argument that these new believers struggled with, the biggest debate that they struggled with in the church, was this idea of, can non-Jews be Christians? Because a lot of them felt they can't. And the Bible says they would have no small debate. In other words, they would yell and holler and scream and argue with each other over this one point. Um, Paul, uh, as he's writing, a lot of times in the book of uh, you know, Galatians in particularly, he's very angry with believers who are uh, saying that everybody has to be circumcised or basically they all have to become Jewish or they can't be believers. And this was like the big argument in the New Testament. This was, the, you know, we don't deal with it. We don't even think like that because hardly any of us are Jews. We're just Gentiles, just believers in Jesus. We don't think about it. But in the beginning, this was a big, major, stinking deal. And they fought bitterly about this because they truly felt that unless you were Jewish, you couldn't be saved. Um, you know, they were, they were pretty strong about that. 
Uh, in fact, for God to get through to Peter, if you read about it in the book of Acts, God gave him a, a revelation. He had a vision. Three times he saw this big sheet let down from the from heaven, and this inside the sheet he saw all these kind of animals and stuff that Jews were forbidden not to eat. And the sheep came down, and God spoke to them and said, uh, said to Peter, says, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never touched anything unclean. And he said, don't call unclean something that God has made clean. Three times he did this. And then all of a sudden, he came out of his vision, and uh, these people came to the door, and the Spirit of God told him to go with these guys. These were Gentiles, non-Jews. So he goes with these non-Jews into their home, and <laughs> you have to read it, but he says, the first thing he says out of his mouth, he says, you know, I really shouldn't be here with you people. I mean, to, to him, to those guys at that time, it was like hanging with chickens and squirrels. I mean, Jews really felt Gentiles were just a little bit above animals. Not much more. They really did not think very highly of anybody who was not Jewish. So his first response to these people, I really shouldn't be here with you people. I, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here, but God told me to come. And he starts sharing the gospel with them. And the Bible says that while he was speaking, in other words, he wasn't trying to convert them. He didn't say, you know, let's all bow our heads and let's let's all pray a prayer together and receive Christ in your life. He wasn't trying to get them saved at all. He didn't even think they could get saved. He was just telling them what he believed. And the Bible says while he was speaking, all of a sudden these people came to faith in Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes down. They start worshiping God. Some guys start speaking in tongues. I mean, it's like Peter goes, whoa, how weird is this? He wasn't expecting any of that to happen. And then he goes back and said, look, I was preaching. These guys get saved. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues, all this kind of stuff. Surely God is receiving them, so we should receive them. That started the whole argument. And that's when they started this whole argument about... Um, I thought I had something on the inside here, buggy. <laughs> Sorry, I have the attention span of a fly. That's what started the whole argument about uh, whether or not these believers had to become Jews. Because what they accepted was, okay, if they're going to believe, that's okay, even though that was rough for them. But now you've got to become Jewish. You need to become circumcised. You need to follow the law of Moses. That's when the whole argument started. They said, no, no, no. You can be a believer without doing all of that. And again, you will see this theme repeated throughout the entire New Testament. When you talk, when you see Paul and the, uh, the apostles arguing about this whole idea of circumcision, that you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to become Jewish. la di la di la di la di da Anyway, okay. So, James is writing in this book, to the basic believers who at the time were, they were virtually all Jewish. So his reference was constantly back to the law because they were raised under the law of Moses. And he was trying to say, well, now we, we live under a new law, which is the law of grace under Christ. This is, this is the, the perfect law of freedom that he referred to. But yet at the same time, they still kind of held to the Old Testament law. They kind of had married the two. So that's what his whole reference is when you hear James constantly referring to the law to these believers. Again, not as significant to us because we don't deal with those kinds of things. Uh, anyway, so he says, if you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the, the great law. Remember, they, they like the law. Then you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, he says, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Why? Because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And he says, for whoever keeps the whole law 
and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Very powerful scripture. I, I like to quote the scripture to people who try to get believers to, you know, follow the Old Testament, you know, about what kind of foods we should eat or what we shouldn't or what days we should worship and what. I say, you know, be careful. We don't follow the law. We are walking in grace today. And besides, the Bible says that if you break just one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Which is what James says. So you don't want to get into the whole thing of trying to obey the Old Testament law. Anyway, he says, uh, for, who, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Well, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you're still a lawbreaker, he says. The whole point is you break the law and then you're in trouble. So anyway... Then he goes on and he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Ow! Judgment without mercy. What's the difference between judgment and mercy? Judgment is uh, what you get for what you deserve. In other words, when you get pulled over by a cop, you don't demand judgment. You don't want to get what you deserve. You know, if you were speeding or whatever the deal is, you don't say, I demand judgment. If you're smart, you appeal to mercy. All right, there's the difference. Mercy, even though the law was broken, mercy covers the judgment and hopefully he lets you off if you're a nice guy. If you're, if he's a nice guy and you're being nice and respectful to him. Anyway, uh, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without, without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. You don't want to go to judgment day without mercy. Man, that is a nasty. That would be a horrible thing to have judgment without mercy. And he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Praise God. But again, to those who are not merciful, you cancel out mercy, and then all you get is judgment. Uh, This concept is shown over and over again in the Bible, where Jesus said, you know, pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Because he says, God, if you don't forgive people, God won't forgive you. The way we treat others is the measure about how God will treat us. That's basically what he's saying here, and repeating this concept that Jesus taught and others taught throughout the New Testament. You can't uh, expect to treat people harshly and meanly and in a nasty way, and then think, that this won't matter for you, that God will just pour grace and mercy on you. You know, you're fooling yourself. There are people who are uh, extremely critical of others, always criticizing people and always criticizing. I mean, there's people that criticize everything. They criticize the church. They criticize the pastor. They criticize the messages. They criticize people for not criticizing enough. I mean, they just nick, nick, pick. All the time, and then they stand before God and worship and thank you, God, for your grace and mercy. You know, you're kidding yourself. You think you're gonna be critical and nasty and picking and showing everybody else's faults, and God's just gonna give you a pass? You know, don't be foolish. None of us can afford to be so critical of other people and so mean to other people, thinking that we can get away with that. I don't know about you, but I need all the mercy and grace in my life I can possibly get. Why? Because I am uh, not a perfect person. I make mistakes. I have faults. I have struggles just like everybody else's. I want God's mercy and grace to me. Therefore, I need to strive to be merciful to others, kind to other people. 
give other people a break. Don't demand judgment on people, but let mercy triumph over judgment. Say, yeah, you deserve to be criticized. You deserve to be disciplined for this one thing, but I cover you with mercy. That's not to say that you still sometimes aren't forced to do discipline in the church and stuff like that. But you don't lead with that. You lead with mercy. And we need to treat people in a merciful way. Why? So God will treat us in a merciful way. Unless, of course, you don't care if God treats you in a merciful way and you think you're so perfect, you don't need it. Lots of luck with that, by the way. All right, moving on now. He changes the channel on us and he starts talking about the struggle between faith and deeds. He says, what good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith, but no deeds, no works, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, uh, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So, someone comes to you with great need. They're in pain, they're hungry, they're cold, whatever the situation is. And you say to them, praise God, brother, I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm trusting God for you. But you don't do anything to help that person? James is saying, you're full of baloney. It doesn't mean anything. How can you claim to have faith and then don't do what faith demands that you do? You're being a hypocrite. You're being phony. You're being plastic. It's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I remember when we were uh, doing missions uh, early in our Christian experience some almost 30 years ago. You know, and uh, anybody who's been involved in missions know you know you come and you appeal from help for help from others to help you go to the mission field and stuff like that. And uh, people would say stuff like, boy, we're really behind you. But they wouldn't give you anything. They wouldn't help you out in any way. We always laugh and say, yeah, you're, you're so far behind me, I can't see you. you know, well, that doesn't help to say, I'm behind you. I'm you know, emotionally standing with you. I'll be warmed and filled, brother. I'm praying for you. you know, that doesn't help. What helps is not just uh, prayer and stuff is good, but to do something, to help something. That's what James was saying. If you don't... If your faith doesn't cause you to act, if your faith doesn't cause you to help, if your faith doesn't cause you to get involved in other people's lives, then what good is your faith? It's not good for anything. You know, uh, most of you obviously are aware that I, I travel all over the country as a, a marriage and family speaker. One of the criticisms that I get from time to time, uh, even from people in our congregation, is, you know, you always seem to tie everything to relationships somehow. You're always talking about relationships. You don't don't always need to be talking about relationships. Well, the reason I do, number one, obviously, it's it's something that God's called me to do, and I have a passion about it. But the reason I always try and tie it back to relationships is I'm basically trying to do what James is talking about here. If you can't live this out in a practical way, your Christianity, then what good is it? What have you accomplished? I mean, to talk about love, but not to have love in your home, what good is that? To talk about, yeah, I'm patient and I'm kind about people, but you're impatient with your kids and you're screaming at your husband. What good is that? I'm absolutely convinced if you can't live this in your house, then you're not living it. Say, well, I don't believe that. I still am full of faith. Are you really? 
Where's your faith? Well, I show faith and kindness to the people, you know, at work. Or I show kindness to some of the people at church. I shake their hands when they come in to the uh, auditorium or into the church. Or I take their... We're glad you volunteer for those little things or you hand out communion cups. But come on, people. That's not really where your faith is tested. Your faith is tested with the people you are the closest to. People you have to live and work the closest with. Particularly your family. I'm telling you, it's in those situations, the people you have to spend the most time with, the ones you have to work the closest with, the ones you seem to not be able to stand, this is what is showing you where you're really at. This is what James was trying to put out here. We can talk a good talk, we can be as spiritual as we want, but don't tell tell me you love me when you don't know me. Don't tell me, boy, Pastor, I really, I just, we just, we just love you. And I know what you're trying to say now. I love the fact that people say that to me. But I always think in the back of my mind, yeah, you love me because you don't know me. You know, if you really had to deal with me every day, like my staff does, if you had to really deal with me like my wife does, my children, and then you still love me. Well, now that you're not, you're talking. All right? Because... I will test you. I will try you. I will stretch you. Sometimes I do things that irritate people. Sometimes I say really, really mean things to people. Yes, even me. Not that I'm intentionally mean, just we all are human beings and sometimes we blow it and we get impatient and stuff like that. Well, when people in the midst of unkindness and trials and tribulations still walk towards you in love and in kindness and in respect and in patience, that is demonstrating true love. Just because you give and work with people that you don't really know that well or you don't have to, it's easy to be kind to people in a limited setting. In fact, a lot of people intentionally try and stay away from any kind of close relationships because they know that the real them starts popping out as it does in all of us in tight uh, situations. But, uh, you know, actually, marriage in and of itself is a, a very revealing institution. Close relationships, even close friendships, close working relationships at work, if you work really close with people, they all tend to be revealing relationships. That's what a lot of people hate about marriage. They come into marriage thinking marriage will be a covering. I'll be covered. I'll be covered with love and kindness and it'll all be covered. It's not such a covering relationship. I know there's a covering part of it, but a lot of it is a revealing When you're really that close to someone, it starts to reveal who you really are. It's like James says that mirror starts popping up and you get to see what you really look like. A lot of us don't like the mirror. We don't like those close relationships where we're, ooh, I see what I, you know, that can't possibly be me. And we get mad at the mirror. We blame the person holding the mirror, you know, for reflecting at us in a way that that's that's not really us. Nah, reality check. If you get around certain kinds of people and you get nasty, I got news for you. That's a picture of you. It reveals you. You have a hard time with your kids and you get very impatient. That's kind of a picture of you. If you get really nasty and unkind and ignore your wife and you're acting like a jerk, that's a picture of you. Okay? You need to change. You need to grow. You need to take the word of God and become a doer of the word and actually live out your faith, not just talk about living your faith. Anyway, he's going to go on and uh, into this whole argument about the struggle between faith and works. It's a fascinating uh, debate. We'll pick it up again next week. Um, actually, I might show... Uh, we might do something different next week. But anyway, coming up, the next time we pick it up, um, we're going to talk about this whole idea. In fact, this whole struggle between faith and works, um, uh, 
kept a lot of people from thinking that James shouldn't even be in the Bible. When they were first deciding what books were in the Bible, some people thought James shouldn't be because he seemed to say something so different than what the other guys were doing. I think it should be in the Bible. I think it's perfectly legitimate what he's saying, and we'll talk more about it. Um, but uh, it, it is a little challenging, and it does stretch. I like James. He was kind of a countercultural bomb flower, thrower. Like me, challenging people to think, looking at things from a different viewpoint. Um, Martin Luther actually uh, felt that James, the book of James, should not be in the Bible because he argued for, you know, that we need to be have works, not just faith. Again, it sounds like something that's different than the rest of the Bible says, but it's not different. And we'll talk more about it. It's very fascinating stuff, but that's good enough for uh, this week. We'll see you again next week. God bless.